0: Uh, the book of the Revelation of John, first point, it is not revelations. No S. Don't make the rookie mistake. If you hear somebody do it, overlook it, let it go. People are, people are saying the word of God, <laughs> so if we get it wrong, we'll get it wrong. Um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The word of the Lord. So as I was trying to, you know, finish finished Hebrews, and my plan before that was to preach from um, the Revelation um, to John because I wanted to uh, preach about the the glory and magnificence of Jesus Christ. Um, But it was a lot, you know, Revelation is a lot to bite off, but one of the things we have to realize is like, and you think the rest of the Bible is easy to understand? You know, we, it's, there's enough that you can learn from anywhere in the Bible, and there's enough anywhere in the Bible to keep you forever going deeper and deeper and deeper into his word. But Hebrews we particularly went to because it was a good tie-in to the Old Testament and we'd been in Genesis and Exodus and uh, we preached through Numbers and Joshua and so when you go to Numbers having that Old Testament background is, is, is like you're prepared for it because now things make more sense. And a very similar thing is going to be true in the book of Revelation, so that many of the, the imagery and the symbols that are used there, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, then you know, well, that's an Old Testament thing, and if we're looking for a key to how to interpret the book of Revelation, um, it's the key that we use for interpreting every other book of the Bible, which is um, God's Word is its best interpreter. You use, the un- you use the clear parts of Scripture to interpret the unclear parts, and if there's symbolism in the New Testament, the first place you want to go was that symbol also used in the Old Testament and if so how was it used there? And then that's a very good indication of the way that it would be used now. Um, another thing about the book of Revelation is wipe clear from your mind the idea that it's impossible to understand. Um, if it were impossible to understand and there'd be no reason for it to be put in the Bible. And it certainly wouldn't be called a revelation, because the book, we're going to get into that in just a moment. But I would challenge us to hear this as children, so that if a child reads and hears the book of Revelation, a lot of times they get it better than we do. And it's not unusual in some seminary classes to hear as a professor is teaching on the book of Revelation from different perspectives and things, to have a person who grew up in the church um, say, you know, I remember reading Revelation when I was a child and it made a lot more sense then. And now it doesn't make as much sense as it did then. And it can be because we try so hard to to, make a system, to work it out, to figure everything out, that you end up missing um, the forest for the trees. And so what we should first do with any scripture is you just read it as it comes to you. And then the next stage is to... What did it mean in the um, c- contemporary time when they wrote it? What did those words mean? What did those symbols mean then? What did that, you know, the way they spoke, what did that mean then? Is there anything from the ol- original language we can learn? And this is where, as teachers and preachers, we maybe take you a little next level, just like if you were studying Shakespeare in a, in a school, and they were able to teach you certain things about, you know, what did that word mean? Or, you know, that's culturally, that was this. And so it takes you deeper into an understanding of these things, so I hope that as we go through this, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll go deeper into these things, and so the question is, well, what are these things, and if you're coming to the book of Revelation so that we can figure out the end times, what's going to happen, how's it going to happen, when's it going to happen, and all that kind of thing, you will be thoroughly disappointed. Um, It is popular in our day, I don't know so much today as it was decades ago to have prophecy seminars that we would actually say hey, we got a guy coming in and he's going to preach from the book of Revelation and we're going to talk about what all's happening. And you could pack people in because people wanted to know because every generation believes this is it. I can see it coming. And there have been generations, I mean you need to go back hundreds, thousands of years, see some things that have happened in the course of the world and they thought this is it. And they have much better reason for thinking that was it than even we do now. Today we see things, we're thinking, that must be the mark of the beast. Surely this is that, surely this is it. You know, it's like, don't interpret the book of Revelation with your newspaper. Goodness, you can tell that's a dated statement. <laughs> Certainly don't interpret the book of Revelation by Googling it. Wherever you get your news, <laughs> if it's not from the Bible, don't use that to interpret the book of Revelation. What we do is we take the teachings of the Bible and apply it to our current situations. We do not take our current situation to figure out what the Bible is trying to, what the Bible is saying. It's like, what is it saying and how do I apply it? And that's what we do. And by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do this. And so what we're going to look at is really what's the purpose of the church? Um, what is the future of the church? What's our highest purpose? Why are we here? Now, what's the chief end of man? And to glorify God and to, yeah, it should have been louder, enjoy him forever. Yeah, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Shorter Catechism, question number one. But there's a book that I recommend everyone read, although I've recommended it, and very few have. It's called, although a lot of people have read it, but not at my recommendation, it's called Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. Um, Very prophetic, I think, and if it's not prophetic, it is at least a good way to think about how the church should live during times of persecution and the church is always living in times of persecution at one, in one way or another. And he writes this, that the ultimate goal of modern people and societies is to maximize a feeling of well-being. To maximize a feeling of well-being. And we might not even call that happiness. Just sort of, you know, just general peace about things. That should be, Um, the goal. I just need to have a general feeling of well-being. And there's a phrase that's called on that was coined by a sociologist named Christian Smith. And if you read much Christian or listen to many podcasts, you will have heard the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, It's become very popular because it's very accurate in describing the current situation for much of the modern church or at least modern people who believe about, again, God in some way. And she interviewed about 3,000 teenagers, and she was asking them questions about what do you believe about God? <clears throat> and what she found was that they were basically believing that there is a God, and you think that's good news, well, depends on what you believe about that God, um, and he believed, they believe that all he wants from us and for us is to be happy and to be nice, be happy and be nice. And that you don't really need God unless something gets in the way of those goals. If God gets, you know, if something's in the way of your happiness or something's in the way of you being nice, being able to be nice, or other people being nice to you, then what do we need God for unless it's to help me feel better? And so moralistic, therapeutic deism, moralistic means it's about being nice be nice to one another? How do you be nice to each other? Therapeutic, it's about feelings. How do I deal with, how do I feel better about things? And then deism, a deist is a person that believes there's a God, but that is kind of the blind watchmaker idea where there's a God, but he's not really present. He doesn't really interact with us on this level. And I tried to come up with some analogy that we might um, equate with that. And the best I could come up with was, it's like you have a grandparent that lives in another country, and the only time you really write to, to the grandparent is when you need money, and they always send it to you when you need it, and that's it. Like, I don't know them any better than that. So you don't really have a relationship with that grandparent, but they're there. And I'm glad they're there because, you know, birthdays and holidays, and when I ask for it, I, I get something, and it's nice to know they're out there. But if you had to live with them for a while, they might drive you crazy, but that's all right. And so that's sort of the way people think about God a lot today. Um, And it really defines the way many, many Christians actually, in practice, think about him. They might know better than to say it, but that's the way it ends up coming out. Um, That God doesn't demand, well, one, to talk about God demanding anything of us is sort of not good in certain circles. But the idea that he might demand my worship... It's not really accurate to a lot of people. He demands a relationship with me. He doesn't demand worship. It's a, we're buddies, we're pals. Or he demands my worship, which is a Sunday morning performance full of emotions and outpourings, um, but not necessarily my obedience or my commitment or a thoroughgoing relationship in a way that is real and vibrant and, and living. So we had to be careful that we don't just pay him lip service when we say we believe. Um, Where, uh, you know, maybe what we do is just tend to pray and ask him for stuff we need. We tend to, you know, ask for things maybe other people need. But, you know, all we're doing is just asking him for, for, for stuff, basically, that we might feel better about things. Um, and we, maybe we use religion for different reasons, to control our children, to help us feel less guilty um, about things that we do, just to help us to feel like you know when we die, we'll go to heaven, so we don't worry too much about death. And, and that's as far as we get, which really doesn't make us much better than any other person who would worship any other um, god by any other name. But you know what God demands for us is to recognize our total dependence on him. And sometimes I'll talk about the, you know, you have a child learning how to ride a bike, steering. Uh, you have uh, training wheels, you go behind, you hold it, finally you take steering wheels off and you're running behind it, and you long for the time you can let go and they can do this on their own. And um, there are lots of parental analogies in Scripture, but that ain't one of them. It is... You're, we need to recognize the fact that if God lets us go, we plummet. And not only we plummet, but we crash into everybody else and cause all kinds of other problems. That we want him to be, they're not training wheels, they are the thing, he is that which keeps us afloat, aloft, straight up, and going in the direction we need to go. We don't grow in our faith by becoming more independent from God. We grow in our faith by becoming more dependent on God. And that's... Allowed, enables us to be a better person in all the different areas of our life where we can help other people as well, as well as allow other people to help us too, for that takes a certain amount of, of humility. And we need to see that He is God and that He deserves not just our friendship but our worship. And I'm really not sure that, that we will fully understand what this means on this side of heaven. But we're living in a world which is under constant attack, spiritual attack. Um, we're told that that's the way it's going to be in these last days. And certainly we are living in the last days, as defined by the Bible, is the time from Christ's resurrection until the time of his second coming. Those are the last days. It's biblical. So, And John, you'll see in Revelation, says, I am your partner in the tribulation. So we're in the tribulation. Um, the idea, and we'll talk about this at some other point, these ideas of the great tribulation. You know, is there going to be a great tribulation? It's like, well, you know, one thing is depending on where you live to suggest to some people that this isn't the great tribulation is um, kind of insulting to what they're going through. Because think about what you think, if you have popular opinions on, on what this is, what's that great tribulation going to look like? How bad is it going to be? I don't care what you come up with, it is not worse than what a lot of Christians have gone through and will go through. So there is tribulation. It is by the grace of God that we have been protected in our shire. So we need to thank God for that. But while we're under his special grace and protection, we need to make sure that what we're doing as the church is growing stronger, is fighting his battles and becoming his light and following him more deeply and using all of the gifts that we have to serve others here and around the world. And, um, and we're called to do that with our time, treasure, talents, prayers, with all of our being. The world belongs to Christ, and we are told to be in the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, them to, to obey, to follow Christ. So we first are to do this as well. But Satan wants nothing less than the total annihilation of the church. I mean, nothing should be more obvious to the Christian than that. If Satan wants one thing, it is to devour the church. You're going to see that um, very clear in the book of Revelation with a a dragon with his mouth open to devour. It's like, what's the dragon? What's that? Satan! So what he wants to destroy the church. He has been from the beginning a murderer and the Bible tells us that the thief speaking of Satan comes to steal, kill and to destroy while Christ has come that we might have life. True faith in Jesus Christ that we might have life. So hold your place. There in Revelation, look at um, 2 Timothy. Just go back a few pages on the other side of Hebrews there. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, and listen to what Paul says to his um, child in the faith, Timothy, um, about the word of God and about these days that we live in. And about really how we should approach these ideas that we find in, in Revelation, and how we approach the time in which we currently find ourselves. For we indeed were born for such a time as this. So the response for to us should not be, uh, "Woe is me! Why is me? is always worse now than it ever has been." But what's my role right now? What? How am I? Why did God put us right here, right now, at this time? And what would He have us to do? So. Second Timothy chapter three, verse one, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, understand this in the last days and we're living in the last days, same as they were. There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Now, here's one thing. This is, going to define, this is going to describe us, and so that should convict us. But we also need to recognize this should not define us. And if it does, that we can repent. We go to the Lord. We say, help me. Make me not like this. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, Unappeasable. I love the unappeasableness. You see that a lot. No matter what you do, they will not be appeased. Doesn't matter what you do. Unappeasable. Slanderous. They're going to lie about you. Without self-control. Brutal. Not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here's a terrible one having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So you have to ask yourself, what is the power of the gospel? Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is supposed to be the two magicians that were, in mean, Exodus, that were uh, matching uh, miracle for miracle the works of, of, of Moses, but then finally could not continue to do it. Verse 10. You, however, and this should be us. Now we're talking, okay, let's let this be us now. Um, You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving, being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Childhood, teach your children. This is what Timothy had. So the children, I'm not gonna ask you if your parents are teaching you. I just teach you to lie in church. I don't want you to do that. But what I want you to do is think about this. Do you study for a test? Do you have class work at school that you read for? in some of you are homeschooled. Do you have books that you're supposed to read? Do you have tests you're supposed to take? Do you have things that you need to memorize? Do you have lessons that you have to learn year after year after year with the idea being eventually when you graduate from your 12th grade that you might go on possibly to college where there'll be more learning or you go into a field of, of, um, of, of work or trade where you're expected to have gain more knowledge. You're supposed to have a lifetime where you're a lifetime learner. So that what you do is you take your education quite seriously. And I think probably, look around the room, the children we have in here do. But what I want our parents to think about is, do you put at least as a fraction of the effort in training your children in the things of God as you do the secular things we're learning about the world. Math is good. You need math. You need to learn how to read. You need how to do logic. You need how to learn certain things about physics and life and stuff so the Bible makes more sense. But if you spend all your time making your children um, get their math homework done, possibly even not going to church because they got a report due or something, that your children learn that their secular education is more important than learning about the things of God don't be surprised when that's what they go after train your children as Timothy's parents did so that they will be acquainted with the sacred writings so that they will know theology not a bunch of whatever be like David be like whoever but that. What is the chief in the man? Who did make you? Why did he make you? What is repentance? What is salvation? What is justification? What is, I mean, one of the things that we've had a great deal of success with in this church as far as um, teaching outside the walls are, is, is the college night thing we had which was high school seniors and college students that came and I just put Dr. Kelly's systematic theology notes on the screen from seminary. Some of them were like you know, pass me to Doritos, and let's get past this. But most of them were, why has nobody ever taught me this before? <laughs> where where has this been? This is unbelievable. I mean, I've taught junior high classes, and you go deep with them in junior high classes, and you'll have people that are like, their eyes light up. You know, If you're a teacher in school, anyway, you you have different kinds of students. As some t- students are just like, wake me up when it's over, and some, they're like, I remember I took physics, and I wasn't a great student in school. I had too many other things that were seen more important. But senior year of high school, I took physics, and I was like, "Why didn't physics? Do... Why weren't they teaching this in kindergarten? Physics should have been taught." You mean there's ways that things work in the world, and through math you can figure out how it works. And I was like, and half of you were sitting there going, "Yeah, I'm just glad we had crayons." Yeah, me too. <laughs> but you know, it's like, don't, don't mistake your children's childishness and immaturity as, as ignorance, as stupidity. They are capable of understanding far more than we believe, and they know more than we believe, they see more than we think, and they imitate us more than we would like at times. So make sure you're training your children and that children you pay attention and you make it your life's effort to know the things of God better. Is what we're called to. And so when we go to the revelation that we're coming into, it is called the apocalypsis. In Greek, the word for revelations apocalypse. So when we think about something's apocalyptic, we've changed that word now to mean the end of the world, everything's going to blow up. It's apocalyptic. It's like, well, it really means an unveiling. It actually means to, to draw back the curtain, to reveal. So if we're, it's interesting that we will come to the book of Revelation and believe at times that it obscures the things of God. That I really go to a different book that's a little more clear. It's like, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's supposed to be something that actually tells us what God's doing in the world today. And we're just out of Hebrews, and we saw that Jesus is greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, he's the great high priest. And in Revelation, we're going to continue to see him as the lamb slain, and as the mighty warrior God, who is in control of all things, who rules the universe, who is indeed omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, he knows everything, is everywhere, is in control of everything and he's directing the church to its purposes. And I'm gonna go ahead and if if you haven't read Revelation, I'd say close your ears, you don't wanna hear the the end yet, but let me go ahead and give it to you. This is the whole point of Revelation. If you don't get anything else about Revelation, get this and you will be able to answer the question, what is the book of Revelation about? And it is this, Jesus wins. There's no better news. We're going through terrible times. Jesus wins. But I'm being persecuted terribly. The church is under attack. There are people being killed for their faith. Jesus will win. He's winning now. And then we're going to see um, throughout the book of Revelation unveiling, a revealing of the spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes, what's really taking place as we see the things that are going on in our world, as it concerns us and worries us as it should. Because we're called to be mighty warriors in the faith. We're called to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus. It's a a path of suffering, but it's a path of suffering that leads to to peace and through peace, even in the midst of of storms that we go through. But it's a path of suffering that ends in a triumphant resurrection. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, for my sake will. We'll find it. And so you so what's that mean? That's that's, it's odd sounding. But it means that basically this life's not all about you and your happiness and your well-being and how you feel about things. If you interpret the Bible and everything you see around you as, you know, God's supposed to be making me happy. God's supposed to be making me more fulfilled. God's supposed to be making me feel better all the time. Then he's going to let you down a lot and you're going to be angry at him. And then you're going to do all kinds of stuff and be captured by Satan to do his will. And that's what ends up happening to us resentment fear anger depression all these things can come into our lives when we start to to see that the boat is about to sink and jesus is asleep in the back of the ship and we can't wake him up no matter what so we need to think about the things that god thinks about we need to be about the work that god is about which is glorifying himself and caring for and loving our neighbors Thinking of others is more important than ourselves and even loving our enemies in some way, all to the glory of God. There is future glory and there is future reward. And you can get through a lot right now if you can just know it's for a good purpose. I'm getting somewhere. There's something that's happening. I will endure this for a time because we're going to make it somewhere. It's why your kids are always asking you on long trips, are we there yet? And you're just a little further, just a little further. Are we there yet? (laughs) No. You know, the trip, you're going somewhere. So... It's the, the, it's the ride is not as bad if you know it's for a purpose. And then there's even greater purposes that are happening. We're not just in a destination from one place to another waiting to get there. You're here now in order for God to increase your faith, and he's working an eternal weight of glory, and he's doing things through us. that if we were to be made aware of them, we probably would be in awe and afraid to do anything because our actions create so much Um, ripples throughout the world but God is in control of those things and so we pray that we would be faithful and right and just and good because right now the most precious thing that we have in our possession the most valuable thing we have is what bless you again it's not our lives (laughs) it's not our riches it's not our health It's not our families. The Bible says the most precious thing you have is your faith, which is more precious than gold or silver or any such thing. Your faith is the most precious thing you can have. It is more valuable than Dogecoin. Is that how you say that, Ian? It's debatable. You know, you invest in these things, man, why did I get in on that? I mean, you know. Too bad. I wish I got in on that Christian thing. On the last day, everybody's going to heaven, and I missed out. It's like, you know, it's not just for heaven. It's like, what are you doing now? Are you living for Christ? But your faith is the most important thing. If you could have a little bit more faith or a little bit more Dogecoin, then, you know, that tells a lie. Are we willing to lose all that we have for the sake of Christ? And not without faith. There's no way. Dreer in his book *Live Not by Lies*, says this. And, and the book is—it has a lot to do with you know the, the Soviet Union, things that happened there, the, the, her- the horrific things that occurred um, in the 20th century that Satan, spiritual forces allowed evil men and women to do who were in power. Um, it is horrific stuff, and I, I'm afraid that we look at that and go, "That can't happen today. That's like medieval stuff. It, it wouldn't happen again today." Um, we have too many good, we've advanced too far. But that's lies of Satan. The, the only hope that we have of escaping the atrocities of the 20th century under, under Hitler, Popeye, any of these, you know, Mao, Stalin, any of these horrific things, um, the only hope we have of not going there again is the church. That's it. And if the church is unaware of the ploys of Satan, then we're not even going to be helpful for that. And it's not who you should vote for. It's not these things. It is that what Drew talks about. Relatively few contemporary Christians are prepared to suffer for their faith. That's what it'll come down to. It might not happen in your lifetime. Maybe it'll be be later. But there's a certain amount of suffering for our faith that we're called to go through. But it could get really bad. And if it does, are you prepared to suffer for your faith? I mean, truly, to do what a lot of Christians in different places in the world today and in different places in the world in times past. He says, contemporary Christians are not prepared. Relatively few are prepared to suffer for their faith because the therapeutic society that has formed them denies the purpose of suffering in the first place. Now, the idea of bearing pain for the sake of truth seems ridiculous, and yet Jesus says take up your cross, which is the emblem of unjust suffering for the sake of others. So today, we're beginning to see what a world looks like just a little bit without faith in Christ, and it's not just we can do whatever we want to do, but it is, and you can't say that what we are doing is wrong, or we will come after you and we will be, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, those people will be unappeasable. Revelation shows us that Satan sets himself up as a false god to be worshiped by people whom God created to be his image bearers. And that Satan will use, and this is what Revelation shows as you read through it, he will use worldly government and worldly religion and worldly households to promote his purposes demanding dependence on him and obedience promising life and producing death the tree is known by its fruits and the servant of God servants of God are warned as you see in verse 3 in revelation 1 blessed is one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I remember reading this when I was like in the sixth grade and I was going to RAs, Royal Ambassadors in our church. And um, I read that and so each week a different student was given the assignment of reading something from the Bible. So I read this because it said if I read it, I'd be blessed. So I did it selfishly. but. Taking the word of God at its word. But it does say you'll be blessed by reading it. And reading it what? Reading it aloud. Uh, When this was written, everybody didn't have little Bibles to turn to. A lot of people couldn't read. Um, And so the reading of scripture was done from the pulpit. And this is the public proclamation of the word of God. It's the only book of the Bible which in itself says there is a blessing for reading it. And maybe it needs to be there because you might be able to say, oh, kinds of, it's, you know, it's a different type of literature, a different genre. So it might lead you to say, well, I'm not going to go to it. But so there's a promised blessing for reading it. So I want all the blessing I can get. So I'm doing it now. There's also more blessing for those, this includes me and you, who hear it and who keep what is written in it because the time is near. And so what I believe, we'll talk about the time is near, we have more time. But it's like, yeah, one, how much time do you think you have? Time is short. Your individual life is but a whisper. Um, When he wrote these things and he's writing to these seven churches in in Asia, it's like these things are about to shortly take place and they're going to continue to take place um, until the Lord returns. And we're going to see general ways that Satan and God work in this world. But if you just look just briefly, Joshua, chapter twenty-three. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua twenty-three, referencing you know, the idea of what it, does it mean to keep the things that are that are written here. And if you start at um, Joshua twenty-three, just go verse four. Behold. I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore... Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, we're not called to keep and to do what's in the book of the law of Moses. We're called to keep and to do all the things that Jesus Christ has commanded us to do. So, what that is... The moral law of God stands in front of us. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the the sacrificial laws. He's fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. The the, the, um, national laws of Israel aren't the things that we're called to obey anymore. But it is the idea of being set apart as holy unto God, following his rules, his commands, and doing what he says do. We're to keep these words. Not turning aside from it either to the right nor to the left that you may not mix with those nations. Now we're not called, you're supposed to go into nations now. This is one of the great things about the gospel. But not necessarily so with unbelievers. We're among them, but we're not of them. Um, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you a great and strong nation. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. And verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of those nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So what we're to learn from that is if we associate too much with the gods of this world, with the spirit of this age, then what we have to be careful of is then we will share in some of the condemnation that they're sharing in. So we have to come out a certain way. Our difficulty can be how much do we... You've got to be in the world to share the gospel. The spirit of God is working. You're to shine his lights. You're to be able to go and walk in the spirit and not the flesh. That means you've got to be in the word. You've got to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have to follow him closely. So we have Satan will take over government. Satan will take over households which we've seen redefinitions of marriage, redefinitions of what it means to be a man and a woman. That's no mistake that that Satan is attacking image bearers. God created man, male and female, he created them, and Satan will attack at that level. And the more we proclaim that truth in a loving way, not hating people, not disrespecting people, but in a loving way, we will be attacked. And so you have to decide. Are you going to participate in lies? Or you don't you know, have to stand out there with signs and yelling it. You may be called to that, but at least don't participate in the lie if you're called to do it. And that's what's going to become problems because we live in a world full of demonic propaganda, propaganda being defined as information of a biased and misleading nature used to promote a particular political cause or point of view. It's been called fake news. And our question is, um, you know, it's designed to change the World by creating a false impression of what the world really is to change your worldview, to change the way you look at things. You're being constantly given false information by demonic forces. Um, It's always been this way, and it's a lot of propaganda coming at us now, but how do we know the truth? How do we know the difference? And that's what Revelation is about. The false God setting up himself and all these institutions to be worshiped as counterfeit to things of God, and you're going to see that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're also going to see false prophet, beast, and dragon, false trinity. That's what you're going to see. This stuff's real clear in the book of Revelation. I think what happens is we try to read too much stuff in it and find out things that aren't really even there. When what it's just telling us is about is how God works in the world, what the spiritual warfare looks like. So be aware. There's lots of debate over what do you do when there's a government that doesn't seem to be doing things the way that God would have it to have us to do it, and there's debate. Well, no, I think we should stay. Maybe we go. And then what about households? What about submission to husbands? What about you know all these things? Well, I don't know. I think maybe. But look what happens in a church. You let the hint of the fact that a church is not following Christ. Let a hint of the fact because the Bible says that you're submit to those in authority over you. That's government, but you're also to submit to your leaders as ones who watch over your souls, as one who will give an account, but you let, you believe that a church is beginning to veer away from the word of God, and we're out. We'll sure abandon that one quick. What about families? We'll abandon that. Then what happens when a government has turned against God? So we got to look at that too, so we have to be careful. Are you going to follow a government that's being led by Satan? I'm not saying our government is being led by Satan, but I'm saying it is What we're going to see in the book of Revelation is a design of Satan to take control of governments, of churches, and of households. And he's been very successful. He continues to be very successful. But he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. He bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Go back to the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He could have said to show the saints. He could have said to show the religious scholars, the religious leaders, the priests. He said the servants. And what are servants? We have a master. And we might be in another room doing something else, and the master calls your name, but you get up and you go. Unless you're serving two masters, then you're going to hate one and love the other, because you're always going to be at counter um, purposes. And if you want to be your own master, that's really going to be bad. But it's to servants. Those who serve God. This is given to show to his servants if you are a servant of christ you can understand the book of revelation and that's what we're going to do but we have to keep it and we have to follow it and we commit ourselves to it keeping our eyes open for the time is short let's pray father god we thank you that you've given us your word that we would not be caught unawares that if we resist the devil he'll flee from us Forgive us for holding his hand and dancing with him. We know the wages of sin is death and the path of destruction is vast. But it doesn't have to be that way. We pray that you would increase our faith in Jesus Christ. That you would cause us to be willing to follow wherever you lead. That we'd be willing to do whatever you tell us to do. That we'd be willing to suffer for your sake. And that we would um, love our enemies. That we would seek to live peaceful lives. That we would um, be humble in spirit. That indeed the meek shall inherit the world. Help us to know how we're supposed to act. And so we pray that you would help us to know when to speak and when to be silent. For there is a time for both. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.